Chapter Thirteen of the Ranchman by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Shadow of Trouble. Ilham recovered slowly, for Carrington had choked him into unconsciousness. Out of the blank, dark coma, Parsons came, his brain reeling, his body racked with agonizing pains. His hands went to his throat before he could open his eyes and he pulled at the flesh to ease the constriction that still existed there. He caught his breath in great gasps that shrilled through the room, and when at last he succeeded in getting his breath to come regularly, he opened his eyes and saw Carrington seated in a chair near him, watching him with a cold, speculative smile. He heard Carrington's voice saying, "'Pretty close, wasn't it, Parsons?' but he did not answer. His vocal cords were still partially paralyzed. He closed his eyes again and stretched out in the chair. Carrington thought he had fainted, but Parsons was merely resting and thinking. His thoughts were not pleasant. Many times during the years of their association he had seen the beast in Carrington's eyes, but this was the first time Carrington had ever shown it in his presence, naked and ugly. Carrington had told him many times that were he not hemmed in with laws and courts, he would tramp ruthlessly over every obstacle that got in his way. And Parsons knew now that the man had meant what he said. The beast in him was rampant. His passions were to have free reign. He had thrown off the shackles of civilization and was prepared to do murder to attain his aims. Parsons realized his own precarious predicament. Carrington controlled every cent Parsons owned. It was in the common pool, which was in Carrington's charge. Parsons might leave Dawes, but his money must stay. Carrington would never give it up. More, Parsons was now afraid to ask for an accounting or a division, for fear Carrington would kill him. Parsons knew he must stay in Dawes, and that from now on he must play lackey to the master who, at last in an environment that suited him, had so ruthlessly demonstrated his principles. In a spirit of abject surrender, Parsons again opened his eyes and sat up. Carrington rose and again stood over him. You understand now, Parsons, I'm running things. You stay in the background. If you interfere with me, I'll kill you. I'll kill you if you laugh at me again. Your job out here is to take care of Marion Harlan. You're to keep her here. If she gets away, I'll manhandle you. Now get out of here. An hour later, Parsons was sitting on the front porch of the big house, staring vacantly out into the big level below him. His heart full of hatred and impotent resentment, his brain, formerly full of craft and guile, now temporarily atrophied, through its attempt to comprehend the new character of the man who had throttled him. In Dawes, Carrington was getting into his clothing. He was smiling, his eyes glowing with grim satisfaction. At nine o'clock, Carrington descended the stairs, stopped in the hotel lobby to light a cigar, then crossed the street and went into the courthouse, where he was greeted effusively by Judge Littlefield. Quinton Taylor, too, was going to the courthouse. 
This morning at ten o'clock, according to the information received from Neil Norton, sent Taylor by messenger the night before, Taylor was to take the oath of office. Taylor was conscious of the honor bestowed upon him by the people of Dawes, though at first he had demurred, pointing out that he was not actually a resident of the town, the arrow lying seven miles southward. But this objection had been met and dismissed by his friends, who had insisted that he was a resident of the town by virtue of his large interests here, and from the fact that he occupied an apartment above the Dawes Bank, and that he spent more time in it than he spent in the Arrow Ranch House. But on the ride to Dawes, on Spotted Tail, this morning wonderfully docile, despite Tuesday's slander by his master, Taylor's thoughts dwelt not upon the honor that was to be his, but upon the questionable trick he had played on Marion Harlan, with the able assistance of the tall young puncher, Bud Hemingway. He looked down at the foot, now unbandaged, with a frown. The girl's complete and matter-of-fact belief in the story of his injury, her sympathy and deep concern, self-accusation in her eyes, the instant pardon she had granted him for staying at the ranch house when he should not have stayed, all these he arrayed against the bald fact that he had tricked her, and he felt decidedly guilty. And yet somehow... There was some justification for the trick. It was a justification of desire. The things a man wants are not to be denied by the narrow standards of custom. Does a man miss an opportunity to establish acquaintance with a girl he has fallen in love with merely because custom has decreed that she shall not come unattended, save by a negro woman, to his house? Taylor made desire his justification and his sense of guilt was dispelled by half. Nor was the guilt so poignant that it rested heavily on his conscience, since he had done no harm to the girl. What harm had been done had been done to Taylor himself. He kept seeing Marion as she sat on the porch, and the spell of her had seized him so firmly that last night, after she had left, the ranch house seemed to be nothing more than four walls out of which all life had gone. He felt lonesome this morning, and was in the grip of a nameless longing. All the humor had departed from him. For the first time in all his days, a conception of the meaning of life assailed him, revealing to him a glimpse of the difficulties of a man in love. For a man may love a girl. His difficulties begin when the girl seems to become unattainable. Looming large in Taylor's thoughts this morning was Carrington. Having overheard Carrington talking of her on the train, Taylor thought he knew what Carrington wanted. But he was in doubt regarding the state of the girl's feelings toward the man. Had she yielded to the man's intense personal magnetism? Carrington was handsome. There was no doubt that almost any girl would be flattered by his attentions. And had Carrington been worthy of Marion... Taylor would have entertained no hope of success. He would not even have thought of it. But he had overheard Carrington. He knew the man's nature was vile and bestial, and already he hated him with a fervor that made his blood riot when he thought of him. When he reached Dawes, he found himself hoping that Marion would not be in town to see that his ankle was unbandaged. 
but he might have saved himself that throb of perturbation, for at that minute Marion was standing in the front room of the big house, looking out of one of the windows at Parsons, wondering what had happened to make him seem so glum and abstracted. When Taylor dismounted in front of the courthouse, there were several men grouped on the sidewalk near the door. Neil Norton was in the group, and he came forward, smiling. "'We're here to witness the ceremony,' he told Taylor. Taylor's greetings to the other men was not that of the professional politician. He merely grinned at them and returned a short, "'Well, let's get it over with,' to Norton's remark. Then, followed by his friends, he entered the courthouse. Taylor knew Judge Littlefield. He had no admiration for the man, and yet his greeting was polite and courteous. It was the greeting of an American citizen to an official. Taylor's first quick glance about the interior of the courthouse showed him Carrington. The latter was sitting in an armchair near a window toward the rear of the room. He smiled as Taylor's glance swept him, but Taylor might not have seen the smile, for Taylor was deeply interested in other things. A conception of the serious responsibility that he was to accept assailed him. Until now, the thing had been entirely personal. His thoughts had been centered upon the honor that was to be his. His friends had selected him for an important position, and yet Taylor was not vain. Now, however, ready to accept the oath of office, he realized that he was to become the servant of the municipality, that these friends of his had elected him not merely to honor him, but because they trusted him, because they were convinced that he would administer the affairs of the young town capably and in a fair and impartial manner. They depended upon him for justice, advice, and guidance. All these things, to be sure, Taylor would give them to the best of his ability. They must have known that, or they would not have elected him. These thoughts sobered him as he walked to the little wooden railing in front of the judge's desk, and his face was grave as he looked at the other. "'I'm ready to take the oath, Judge Littlefield,' he gravely announced. Glancing sideways, Taylor saw that a great many men had come into the room. He did not turn to look at them, however, for he saw a gleam in Judge Littlefield's eyes that held his attention. "'That will not be necessary, Mr. Taylor,' he heard the judge say. "'The governor, through the attorney general, has ruled that you were not legally elected to the office you aspire to. Only last night I was notified of the decision. It was late, or I should have taken steps to appraise you of the situation.' Taylor straightened. He heard exclamations from many men in the room. He was conscious of attention that had come into the atmosphere. Some men scuffled their feet, and then there was a deep silence. Taylor smiled without mirth. His dominant emotion was curiosity. Not legally elected, he said. Why? The judge passed a paper to Taylor. It was one of those that had been delivered to the judge by Carrington. The judge did not meet Taylor's eyes. You'll find the full statement of the case there, he said. Briefly, however, the governor finds that your name did not appear on the ballots. Norton, who had been standing at Taylor's side all along, now shoved his way to the railing and leaned over it. 
his face white with wrath. "'There's something wrong here, Judge Littlefield,' he charged. Taylor's name was on every ballot that was counted for him. I personally examined every ballot. The judge smiled tolerantly, almost benignantly. Of course, to be sure, he said, Mr. Taylor's name appeared on a good many ballots. His friends wrote it in with pencil and otherwise. But the law expressly states that a candidate's name must be printed. Therefore, obeying the letter of the law, the governor has ruled that Mr. Taylor was not elected. There was a malicious satisfaction in Judge Littlefield's eyes as they met Taylor's. Taylor could see that the judge was in entire sympathy with the influences that were opposing him, though the judge tried with a grave smile to create an impression of impartiality. Under the governor's rulings, therefore, he continued, and acting under explicit directions from the attorney general, I am empowered to administer the oath of office to the legally elected candidate, David Danforth. Now, if Mr. Danforth is in the courtroom and will come forward, we shall conclude. Mr. Danforth was in the courtroom. He was sitting near Carrington, and he came forward, his face slightly flushed with the gaze of every person in the room on him. He smiled apologetically at Taylor as he reached the railing, extending a hand. I'm damn sorry, Taylor, he declared. This is all a surprise to me. I hadn't any doubt that they would swear you in. No hard feelings. Taylor had been conscious of the humiliation of his position. He knew that his friends would expect him to fight, and yet he felt more like gracefully yielding to the forces which had barred him from office upon the basis of so slight a technicality. And despite the knowledge that he had been robbed of the office, he would have taken Danforth's hand had he not that instant chanced to glance at Carrington. The latter's eyes were aglow with a vindictive triumph. As his gaze met Taylor's, his lips curved with a sneer. A dark passion seized Taylor, the bitter savage rage of jealousy. The antagonism he had felt for Carrington the day on the train, when he had heard Carrington's voice for the first time, was suddenly intensified. It had been growing slowly, provoked by his knowledge of the man's evil designs on Marion Harlan. But now there had come into the first antagonism a gripping lust to injure the other, a determination to balk him, to defeat him, to meet him on his own grounds and crush him. For Carrington's sneer had caused the difference between them to become sharply personal. It would make the fight that was brewing between the two men not a political fight, but a fight of the spirit. Taylor interpreted the sneer as a challenge, and he accepted it. His eyes gleamed with hatred, unmistakable, as they held Carrington's, and the grin on his lips was the cold, unhumorous grin of the fighter, who is not dismayed by odds. His voice was low and sharp, and it carried to every person in the room. We won't shake, Danford. You are not particular enough about the character of your friends. The look was significant, and it compelled the eyes of all Taylor's friends, so that Carrington instantly found himself the center of interest. However, he did not change color. On his face a bland smile testified to his entire indifference to what Taylor or Taylor's friends thought of him. 
Taylor grinned mirthlessly at the judge, spoke shortly to Norton, and led the way out through the front door, followed by a number of his friends. Norton took Taylor into his office, adjoining the courthouse, and threw himself into a chair, grumbling profanely. Outside, they could see the crowd filing down the street, voicing its opinion on the startling proceedings. "'An election is an election,' they heard one man say, a Taylor sympathizer. "'What difference does it make that Taylor's name wasn't printed? It's a doggone frame-up, that's what it is.' But Danforth's adherents were not lacking, and there were arguments in loud, vigorous language among the men who passed the door of the Eagle office. I could have printed the damned ballots myself if I had thought it necessary, mourned Norton, and now we're skinned out of it. Norton's disgust was complete and bitter. He had slid down in the chair, his chin on his chest, his hands shoved deep into the pockets of his trousers. Yet his dejection had not infected Taylor. The latter's lips were curved in a faint smile, ironic and saturnine. It was plain to Norton that whatever humor there was in the situation was making its appeal to Taylor. The thought angered Norton, and he sat up, demanding sharply, Well, what in hell are you going to do about it? Taylor grinned at the other. Nothing now, he said. We might appeal to the courts. But if the law specifies that a candidate's name must be printed, the courts would sustain the governor. It looks to me, Norton, as though Carrington and Danforth have the cards stacked. Norton groaned and again slid down into his chair. He heard Taylor go out, but he did not change his position. He sat there with his eyes closed, profanely accusing himself, for he alone was to blame for the complete defeat that had descended upon his candidate, and he could not expect Taylor to fight a law which, though unjust and arbitrary, was the only law in the territory. Taylor had not gone far. He stepped into the door of the courthouse to meet Carrington, who was coming out. Danforth and Judge Littlefield were talking intimately in the rear of the room. They ceased talking when they saw Taylor, and faced toward him, looking at him wonderingly. Carrington halted just inside the threshold of the doorway, and he too watched Taylor curiously, though there was a bland, sneering smile on his face. Taylor's smile as he looked at the men was still fairly ironic, and his eyes were agleam with a light that baffled the other men. They could not determine just what emotion they reflected. And Taylor's manner was quietly delivered and nonchalant, as though he had merely stepped into the room for a social visit. His gaze swept the three men. "'Framing up again, huh?' he said, with drawling emphasis. "'You sure did a good job for a starter. I just stepped in to say a few words to you, all of you. To you first, Littlefield.' And now his eyes held the judge. They seemed to squint genially at the man. I happen to know that our big, sleek, floor-flusher here, nodding toward Carrington, came here to loot Dawes. Quite accidentally, I overheard him boasting of his intentions. Danforth was sent here by Carrington more than a year ago to line things up politically. I don't know how many men are in the game, and I don't care. 
You are in it, Littlefield, and I saw that by the delight you took in informing me of the decision of the Attorney General. I just stepped in to tell you that I know what is going on, and to warn you that you can't do it. You'd better pull out before you make an ass of yourself, Littlefield. The judge's face was crimson. This is an outrage, Taylor, he sputtered. I'll have you jailed for contempt of court. Not you, glibbed Taylor calmly. You haven't the nerve. I'd like nothing the better than to have you do it. You're a little fuzzy dog that doesn't crawl out of its kennel until it hears the snap of its master's fingers. That's all for you. He grinned at Danforth, felinely, and the man flushed under the odd gleam in the eyes that held his. I can classify you with one word, Dave, he declared. You're a crook. That lets you out. You do what you are told. He now ignored the others and faced Carrington. His grin faded quickly, the lips stiffening, but there was still a hint of cold humor in his manner that created the impression that he was completely in earnest, that he was keenly enjoying himself, and that he did not feel at all tragic. And yet, underlying the mask of humor, Carrington saw the passionate hatred Taylor felt for him. Carrington sneered. He attempted to smile, but the malevolent bitterness of his passions turned the smile into a hideous smirk. He had hated Taylor at first sight, and now, with a jealousy provoked by the knowledge that Taylor had turned his eyes toward Marion Harlan, the hatred had become a lust to destroy the other. Before Taylor could speak, Carrington stepped toward him, thrusting his face close to Taylor's. The man was in the grip of a mighty rage that bloated his face, that made his breath come in great labored gasps. He had not meant to so boldly betray his hatred, but the violence of his passions drove him on. He knew that Taylor was baiting him, mocking him, taunting him, that Taylor's words to the judge and to Danforth had been uttered with a grimly humorous purpose of arousing the men to some unwise and precipitate action. He knew that Taylor was enjoying the confusion he had brought. But Carrington had lost his self-control. Without a word, but with a smothered imprecation that issued gutturally from between his clenched teeth, he swung a fist with bitter malignance at Taylor's face. The blow did not land, for Taylor, self-possessed and alert, had been expecting it. He slipped his head sideways slightly, evading the fist by a narrow margin, and, tensed, his muscles taut, he drove his own right fist upward heavily. Carrington, reeling forward under the impetus of the force he had expended, ran fairly into the fist. It crashed to the point of his jaw, and he was unconscious, rigid, and upright on his feet in the instant before he sagged and tumbled headlong out through the open doorway into the street. With a bound, his face set in a mirthless grin, Taylor was after him, landing beyond him in the wind-road dust at the edge of the sidewalk, ready and willing to administer further punishment. End of chapter 13